Turn with me, uh, if you would, in your copies of God's Word to Acts chapter 4. We're working our way through the book of Acts, and today we find ourselves at verses 32 through 37. Really, for the past five or six weeks, we've spent our time looking at this narrative that surrounds Peter and John going to the temple and healing a man who had been unable to walk from birth. And not only did we see that miracle, but we also saw everything that followed, all of the fallout, both positive and negative. Positively, there were many people who were brought to faith. They heard the preaching of Peter and John. They came to faith. They believed on Christ. But then there's this negative aspect as well where the religious elite do not like what is happening. And they feel threatened and they wish to silence the mouths of the followers of Jesus. And they attempt to but fail. And that was one narrative we wrapped up the last time I preached. And this week we're beginning, this text is, I believe, kind of an introduction to a narrative that's coming. Uh, a story you're probably familiar with, if you're familiar with the book of Acts, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Um, I'm not going to get into that text uh, this week. That is for next week. But suffice it to say, Ananias and Sapphira are not a good example to follow. They're given as a picture of what not to do, a warning of how not to be. And we'll get to them and their sudden, unexpected end next week. But before we do, we're given a wonderful example of the life of the early church. This text is going to be very similar to the text we saw at the end of Acts chapter 2. That was another picture that was given. You uh, remember it. I'll, I'll read it. I'll read sections of it for you. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all who believed were together and they had all things in common and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Do you remember this wonderful passage? Well, we're given another one this week. It's quite similar. We're given a picture of the church at its best, specifically the harmony that is characteristic of faithful gospel churches. And notice that as we read this passage, we see that the Christian life is public. The Christian life is not something we do in our own home, behind closed doors and the privacy of our home. It's not secret. It's not some type of secret society or club. I mean, I'll, I can come out and tell you exactly what, what we believe as a church. We aren't hiding anything. Christianity is very public. And Luke, in this letter to Theophilus, describes in detail the life and the practices and the fellowship and the community of the church. It's easy to do because it could be seen. 
And so as we read and work our way through this passage, remember that our faith, it is not hidden, it is not private, it is to be displayed to the outside world. You know, there's kind of, there's two tendencies here as, as, as Christians. Uh, we are to be unified to God through Christ, and we're also to be unified to one another. That's easy to mess up, though. Sometimes we'll be unified with one another, but not to our God. And then sometimes we have the attitude, well, it's just me and, and my Savior, and I don't need anyone else. It's just the two of us. No, we're in fellowship with our God through Jesus Christ, and we're in fellowship with one another. And if we're inconsistent there, the world is going to see and recognize it. So before we get into this text, let's pray together. Father God, I know my desire as a minister and that our desire as a congregation is is to live and to uh, to exist as a church, as as a local church, as the bride of Christ, in a way that is honoring to you and uh, helpful to one another. Father, would you would you help us? Would would we see uh, would we see something of the early church here? And Father, by your grace and by the power of the Spirit, um, would you would you perform the same work here and? in this uh, little congregation. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to begin in verse 32 of Acts chapter 4 and read to verse 37. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles' Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Three things I want us to see in this picture of the church at its best, and that's unity and giving and testimony. The unity of the church, the giving of the church, and the testimony of the church. And we're going to start with unity. One essential of the church being the church is living in unity with one another. We see this in the first half of verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. There's a good deal of confusion over Unity today. We need to specify what kind of unity we're talking about. Um, There's ecumenical unity. I don't know if you're familiar with ecumenical movements where you'll have 
people from all different denominations and different streams of Christianity coming together into one room and sitting down at one table and saying, look at the unity we've achieved. We can gather representatives from these different faith traditions under one banner. Well, the problem is when that happens, something else is going to have to bend or most likely break. When we try to pursue unity wrongly, there are certain things we have to throw out. There will be certain beliefs we have to leave at the door or maybe some rough edges to the gospel that have to be smoothed out and able to get everyone to the table. If you gathered an ecumenical movement at a table, there will be doctrines you'll have to leave out. The existence and reality of hell, the exclusivity of Christ, the biblical definition of marriage and the family, God's sovereignty and salvation, all of these will be left out. But for many, it's okay to throw these out because we've achieved unity. These Movements, as I said, may appear to be unified, but really they are not that all unified. I know the church that I was a part of for 26 years that I grew up in, that my wonderful parents are still a part of, the United Methodist Church. They, uh, my parents can tell you they are united in name only right now. There's a great struggle going on within that denomination And so we need to ask, what is the basis of unity? Is the basis of unity simply being unified for unified sake? Look at all the different people we have sitting at this table. A.W. Tozier provides a wonderful example of Christian unity. I'm going to read to you his quote, and then we'll talk about it. He writes, Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork, are automatically tuned to each other. They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers met together, each one looking away to Christ, are closer in heart to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity-conscious And turn their eyes away from God and strive for closer fellowship. I don't know if the, I hope the piano analogy makes sense to you. You have a hundred pianos in a room and let's imagine that Yamaha says, all right, I'll play my middle C. And then the Kaiway says, I'll play my middle C. And the Steinway says, all right, I'll play my middle C. And they all start to adjust to one another. What's going to happen is you're going to have a room full of pianos that are all out of tune. They're going to be flat or sharp. They might be so together, but they'll all be out of tune. Rather, bring in, uh, bring in the, the tuning fork and go to each individual piano and tune each one, and you will have a room filled with perfectly tuned pianos because they are all submitting to one standard. 
It's the picture of the church. When we all gather together and leave out the tuning fork, we'll all become out of tune. But if we all will look to Christ and who he is, we'll be closer to each other than we could possibly be any other way. See, true Christian unity is not found in giving up certain things so that we can get along. True Christian unity is found in looking to Jesus and what does the Scripture say about him. Now, there are going to be things that we will disagree on. There will be secondary and tertiary uh, disagreements that we have. Maybe we have some over baptism or um, the like. But those are, those are secondary primary thing that unifies us is looking to Jesus and who is he. We then see that this unity produced one heart and soul among the believers. You know what the word heart means? Every time you see heart in scripture, imagine that you were an onion and I could peel back all of the layers of who you are at the very center, very bottom layer That's what the Bible describes as the heart. So who are you at the center of who you are? The wellspring of your being, the deepest part of what it means to be you. That's the heart. We're told that they were one in heart. They were of the same heart. They were of the same soul, the same mind. They were thinking along the same lines. They were thinking the same things about God and his Son and the Holy Spirit who empowered them. They were unified in heart and soul. And can we just say, this was amazing. Because remember who we're talking about. These weren't people who all looked the same. I mean, you look back at Acts chapter 2, and you have a list of people that come from different backgrounds and different cultural heritages and different countries. They didn't look the same. They didn't talk the same. You had Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. That's who we're talking about. United in heart and soul. Did some of those groups have cultural baggage that they brought? Maybe a difficult history? Some of those groups had not been nice to other groups in the past? You better believe it. And yet they were all unified in Jesus. He was the tuning fork. You know, there's always danger of division in the church. It's no different today. There's a danger of division in the church, and that danger is putting anything before who you are in Christ. Putting anything else before that tuning fork that aligns us all to the same standard. It doesn't matter what it is. Nothing should be put in that place. There's a great danger, I believe, today, and it's not new, but it's one we're seeing today of putting your ethnicity 
I'm a white Christian, I'm a black Christian, I'm a Hispanic Christian, I'm an Asian Christian. The early church had had that attitude. All of these groups never would have had this unity we read of. And yet they're unified in heart and soul. Now notice, Christian unity here does not mean that everyone is identical. We aren't saying that these are just a bunch of little clones who all believe the same thing and talk the same way, and that's not true at all. They're not always going to see eye to eye. We know that Barnabas and Paul later will go their separate ways. There will be things that divide us. We will have differences, like I said, on secondary issues. But the tuning fork is always the same. The tuning fork is the work of Jesus Christ as revealed in Scripture. You know, sometimes you have the wish. I, I, I have the just, I, I'm looking forward to in glory all the believers being together and singing praises to God together and worshiping God together. And it's a day I'm so excited and look forward to. My heart yearns for that. And, you know, you kind of wish we could do that now. Couldn't everyone be in the same denomination? One commentator noted that some of the worst times in church history have been when everyone was part of one large organization. We're going to have disagreements. We aren't all going to be the same. Uh, we might homeschool. We might public school. We might, we might read different books. But the tuning fork is Jesus Christ. That's the unity that's here. The second characteristic that made the early church the best was um, the sharing of possessions. We see this in the second half of verse 33 and 34. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands and or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what they had. Again, this is going to be somewhat similar to what we talked about back in Acts chapter 2. Here you have gospel unity, and it's such that here are Christians who are willingly, voluntarily giving of their own possessions to provide for others in need. Now, this is not some tax that has been established and put in place that's going to be collected annually. This is when a need would arise, that need would be met voluntarily, willingly by the people. And again, there's uh, some confusion here that perhaps this is communism. Well, communism is not, it, com- communism is not voluntary. Communism is forced, and what you see here in the church is not forced. Communism will say, what is yours is everyone's. What the church says is, what is mine is yours. That's an important distinction to make. Here in this portrait of the church, we see a spirit of generosity that has just permeated the church. And those who were able to give gave what they had and the needs of all were met. 
Paul gives us an example of this in 2 Corinthians 8, the first five verses. He's writing about the churches in Macedonia. And he's writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Here's a group of people who, not the wealthiest church, but they're begging earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. It's a privilege and a joy for them to give. Begging for this opportunity. Now, where does this type of generosity come from? How are they able to do this? Well, we know the answer is that this generosity comes from God. This is a work that the Spirit has done within them. Here are people who have come to know God, and they know that God is gracious. And they also know that God did not have to save them. God could have left them alone. He could have left them to run to hell on their own, and he would have been just in doing so. God was not obligated to save anyone. And yet, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our salvation. This is what they understood. And understanding this will change a person. It will change the way that you view your money, that you view your possessions. It will change the way you give. Your hold on the things of this world will be loosened. You'll be able to let go. Because compared to the infinite value of what you have been given in Jesus Christ, these material possessions... Don't compare at all. God had been generous with them. Ergo, they were generous with one another. We have the example of their unity, the example of their giving. And before we go on to our third, I almost forgot the example we're given in Barnabas. Verses 35 and 37 Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So here's the positive example. We're going to get the photo negative, the opposite of this, next week with Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas saw a need, sold his field, and brought the proceeds to the church. What will this produce? We've said that Christianity is a public faith. What will giving, like this example from Barnabas, what will it produce? Jesus says in John 13, 
A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, loved, love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you, love, if you have love for one another. This giving proved to those around that these individuals knew and loved Jesus. Before we leave giving, we need to understand that giving is not limited to resources or possessions. You know, sometimes it's a lot easier to write a check. Writing a check is the easy option. We're to give spiritually. We're to pray with and for one another. We're to bear one another's burdens. We're to encourage one another. We mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice so there's spiritual giving there's also giving of our time and again this is where we sometimes rather just write a check and be done with it and not give up nights or free time not give up our calendar but we are to free up our time we are to have people into our home to give our time to others. Luke is not giving any new commands here. We know this. He's describing what has happened by the work of the Spirit. But this giving, it's, if it's easier to think of it this way, think of this giving as being uh, people-oriented rather than possession-oriented. That's, that's the focus of the church. They were people-oriented. The third and final characteristic we see of this church is that they were testifying to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. So they were unified. They shared possessions and met needs. And finally, they spoke and taught about Jesus Christ. So here, here are the same men who had been called by Jesus and they'd lived with him and traveled with him and they saw him crucified and they saw and spoke with him resurrected and now they're testifying about him. And this is so simple. But it reminds us that the unity we see here, the love that they have from one another, where does it come from? The tuning fork, Jesus Christ. He was the love that would not let them go. He's the rock of ages cleft for them. And they knew it. And that's why they could find unity. That's why they could let goods go. It's why... Men like Barnabas even sold fields and property. We're told here at the, at the end that there was great grace and great power. Uh, the word in the Greek that we translate as great could be translated as mega. So we see mega grace and mega power here. And they gave their testimony with great power and great grace. And the word that we have translated as power... If we go back and look at its origin, there's another English word that finds the same origin, and that word is dynamite. What a picture of 
the testimony, the message of Jesus going forth. That the strongholds of Satan and the barriers and the walls and the gates that have been put up by the world to keep the good news of Jesus Christ out, those are being blown up. And the good news of the gospel is going forth. And along with it was great grace. I hope grace never becomes one of those buzzwords for us. We need to understand what it means. Grace is unmerited favor. I did not deserve this. I did not earn this. There's nothing in me that makes me qualified to receive this. And yet, the favor of God has been shown to me. That's grace. Jesus came to a people who were blind and living in darkness and hostile to God, and he gave them great or mega grace. We're grateful for that. We need mega grace. That grace was in the hearts of these Christians, and it came out, and the world witnessed it. May great grace be upon us all. Let's pray together. Father God, we read a passage like this, and we're very self-conscious. Maybe we're a little embarrassed. Maybe we feel inadequate that this is not us. We are not doing this well. Father, would you help us? Like the father who cried out to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Father, would you help us in seeing the picture of this local church and their faithfulness by your grace and by the power of your spirit, would you, would you duplicate those same characteristics in this little body? That we would love you well and we would love each other and our community well. That you might be known and you might be praised. We ask this all in the name of our great Lord, Jesus Christ. Our final hymn of response is number 43. Again, it's another bulletin insert. Isaiah 43, if you would stand and join with me in singing.